Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our tribal moment and how we can better communicate with people different from ourselves. Every episode, I talk to someone involved in public conversations, from comics to politicians, activists to academics, and ask them about their sacred values and what they've learned about engaging across divides. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate, review and share. It really helps us. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Washington DC-based Shadi Hamid. Shadi is a political scientist and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in their project on US relations with the Islamic world in the Center for Middle East Policy. He's also a contributing editor for The Atlantic. He's author, most recently, of Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World, and co-author of Rethinking Political Islam. He was raised in an Egyptian Muslim family in Pennsylvania, did his PhD on Islamism at Oxford University, before working at Stanford and the Doha Outpost of Brookings. We spoke about his sacred value of respecting democratic outcomes, why representational intersectional politics is making being a public Muslim a bit more complex, his love for Christian political theologian Abraham Kuyper, and his contrarian tendencies. There's a lot in this one, and I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Shadi, it is so lovely to speak to you today, and I'm going to kick off with our big juicy question, which you, as someone who's studied religion and has studied conflict, possibly might be more comfortable with. And it's about your sacred values, these deep principles that shape you and drive you, and that if you if those are put under pressure, you feel pretty compromised and you might react in ways that are not purely rational. So having had a bit of time to reflect on it, what would be your guess about what your sacred values are? Sure. So this is a tough question and I have been thinking about it a bit and you did give me advance warning. So, well, first of all, I would say that in in kind of everyday political life, I have basically two non-negotiables and I don't know if that's quite the same thing as sacredness, but they 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 are very important to me and I try to to live by them in terms of how I engage in the public sphere. The the first is democracy and respect specifically respect for democratic outcomes. Because of my experiences living in the Middle East and studying the Middle East, that has become increasingly important to me. This idea that even if people we find personally threatening or people we hate win free and fair elections, we have to kind of suck it up and accept those outcomes and be really faithful to that principle that people have the right to make the wrong choice. People have the right to make stupid and even dangerous choices as long as they do so through a peaceful democratic process. And this leads me to my sort of second non-negotiable in political life, which is which is nonviolence or i.e. a political a peaceful political participation. So I'm very I think that I'm a very accepting and tolerant person as long like whatever falls within uh within that however much I might not like it personally I I try to go out of my way to respect it and accept it. So in other words, if someone has ideas or discusses ideas publicly that I find to be really bad as long as they're doing so within a peaceful democratic process i i tend to kind of err on the side of like you know 
let's let's allow that and engage with it and not just dismiss it out of hand or say these people are evil or deplorable or whatever else it might be. So that's that's kind of in politics. When it comes to kind of things that I, I value very and that of course the personal and the political are, are intertwined for me because of the work that I do, but on a more personal level, I think one thing over time that I've come to appreciate more and more is is this idea of embracing difference. And I've become more and more uncomfortable with the idea of sameness or or even even this discourse that we're all basically the same as human beings. We all basically want the same things. And I think that's, I've come to see that as dangerous because when you think that people should be a particular way or that we all evolve in the same direction towards the same endpoint, you inevitably end up with a desire to impose on others who aren't, who aren't on board with your linear teleological project. Um, and that's why I think I've become more tolerant of conflict and the idea that any good and healthy democracy requires ideological conflict and conflict isn't something to be ended or even resolved. It's something to be accepted, embraced, and maybe to some extent also managed because you don't want that ideological conflict to seep into violence. Um, but I, I like this idea of a kind of freewheeling marketplace of very, of very contentious ideas that compete with each other. And, um, and that's also, and just the last thing I'll say on this, and this is something I've learned through Twitter, I've given, I don't like this idea that the objective of debate is to convince the other person of your viewpoint. And that's why I've gotten... I get confused sometimes when people respond to me on Twitter or elsewhere and this, they'll say, you're wrong or I disagree with you. And I'm like, wait a second. Why is your starting premise that agreement is preferable to disagreement? Why do you have to convince me? Why can't we just have this sort of um, th this um, this agonistic approach of just accepting that we're never going to agree with each other probably ever? And as long as we as long as we have good reasons for that disagreement, why is there a problem? Oh, there's so much we could unpack in there. Uh, I'm going to ask you a really mean uh, current <laughs> affairs UK one, which is, would you therefore be hostile to the campaign that's really building force in the UK for a second Brexit referendum? I think the premise <laughs> is that people feel like the original vote didn't um, lay out what the real options were. Um, but within your sacred value, would you feel like that was not respecting the outcome of the referendum? So that that actually fits very well into this idea of the sacred, because even though I don't follow the Brexit debate in terms of its ins and outs every day. That's very wise. Oh, very wise. Yeah, probably. So uh, when the second referendum talk has actually, in the sense you've described the sacred, it has felt threatening to me. It's felt like an attack on not just a policy preference, but on something that I hold on the level of principle. And um, so putting aside the content, and, I, and I'm someone who very much believes that when it comes to material outcomes and policy, staying in the EU is much, much preferable than leaving it. But, but that was the whole point of the referendum. And I don't like this revisionism where people are now talking about Brexit as, as if it was an advisory vote. No one at the time was discussing it or treating it as an advisory vote. And only when one side lost 
they they tried to kind of rethink what what the initial election meant. And you can't just have these do-overs. And where does that end? And at some point you have to be like, well, we can have different kinds of Brexit and we can and we can debate what that might look like. But this idea of undoing an outcome um, is is very concerning to me. I want to ask something that goes back into your childhood, really. Part of the premise of these conversations is that those who are involved in public debate are not just ciphers for the different tribes, but are complex human beings with stories and ways that they've been formed. So I'd love to ask, what were the dominant ideas implicit in your childhood, whether they were religious or philosophical or political, that you think have gone on to shape the man you are today? Yeah, so I think the first thing I'd say is I've always had this anti-authoritarian bent to me. And that that's in part because I did spend time in an authoritarian country, at least partly growing up. I mean, I, I lived, I was in Egypt one year when I was quite young, but then we would go to Egypt quite regularly in the summers and spend a couple of months there. So I, I had a lot of experiences in Egypt. And there was just something very disturbing about the overall climate. And I didn't really have the words or the language when I was younger to really to really express what I felt, but I knew that I felt it. And as as I got older and I started to engage with ideas of democracy versus authoritarianism, I, I started to be able to kind of give voice to this. But there was something, but it goes beyond just the fact of dictatorship. And it's more how dictatorship distorts the human spirit. And maybe I was reading into this a bit and kind of looking at my family members and relatives. Um, so I'm born and raised in the U.S., but originally Egyptian. So my relatives are mostly in e- Egypt still. And seeing how there was a kind of quiet desperation or something wasn't quite right with how people were living. And Egypt has a very what's the right way to put it? Humorous culture or humor. Uh, there is a kind of a love of jokes and joking. And I think that I started to notice that was a cover for for deeper, deeper pain and and deeper dissatisfaction with the way things were. And this idea that people couldn't be free and they couldn't express who they who they fully wanted to be in that kind of context. So I think that that's one thing. Um, Maybe the second is, you know, from an early age, I saw how religion mattered. You know, you you grow up in a kind of American Muslim community, and ours wasn't particularly conservative. It was pretty broad-minded, and my parents, and I would say in particular, were 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 very open-minded, even as religion was important to them. But to see how religion kind of colors people's everyday behavior, and it's not something you even think about consciously as much as it's just imbued. And that that became more important as I, you know, as I went into graduate school and started to study Islam and politics in a more formal way that I could I could maybe understand certain things which would seem foreign to your kind of ordinary secular northeastern American. And I could kind of draw on certain things that I had seen in my childhood and my community to better understand how religion animates people. And how people can't necessarily separate, always at least, between the public and the private. And I think this is more of an issue in Islam than it, than it may be in other religions, which is something that I've argued 
a bit in my own work about how, and this goes back to what I what I said in the beginning about how we're all we're not all the same. And I've always noticed something in in Islam, which I felt was different. And then, and again, maybe I didn't really always know what the right language was to express that realization. But I, I do think it's true. I do think it's important that there is a difference there. That's that's worth um, worth thinking about and and pondering. I very much agree with you and. I'm struggling to frame this question, but I I sometimes talk about the G-bomb, i.e. the God word, in uh, particularly in UK context. I think it's even more of a taboo to talk about God. Um, And I've often wondered why that was. And you've spoken really brilliantly in your work about how for those who are secular or non-religious, the idea that their religious opponents or religious people they encounter really do believe in God is almost too much to get there mind around. And I had a great conversation on this podcast with Andrew Copson, who leads uh, one of the big humanist groups in the UK. And he said, to be quite honest, I make excuses for the people that I meet who I like, who are religious, because I just assume they can't really believe it. And you've said, you know, how many suicide bombers does it take (laughs) to prove genuine, sincere religious belief and some frustration with people who want to reduce it all to economics or all to politics or all to something else. Yeah. How how might we go about talking about God and this incredibly deep seeming gulf between those who are sort of open to the possibility of God or believe in God and those for whom it's even the question almost doesn't compute. I think that I do have some trouble understanding people for whom God doesn't compute. And this doesn't mean I'm not even talking about personal belief. I think it's totally possible for someone to be an atheist or agnostic or not particularly religious or observant, but still still acknowledge that other people, some people, are driven by religion. Religion religion isn't a product of other things, but it's a cause. It's it's a prime mover. And it seems so obvious to me that this would be the case. And maybe that's a kind of an intolerance on my part to not to not be as good as understanding where, where those folks are coming from. But what what bothers I mean, throughout human history, with the exception of just the last few decades or maybe the last century, um, it's gone without saying that religion was a prime mover. So it seems odd to me that people would kind of look at the last century or the last few decades where we see increasing secularization and, and think that that is somehow natural and people who are not on board with that are outside of human history when it's more likely the reverse you know, but also when people say they believe in something, it's not really our job. We can kind of interrogate where those beliefs are coming from and the context in which in which they come about. But to kind of dismiss dismiss people's claims of religious sincerity and religious beliefs as smoke screens for deeper material causes, it just seems disrespectful to how to to the people themselves. And there's no reason to think that people, unless we have good reason to think that's the case, that they're they're lying to us. Why should we assume that unless we have evidence for it? So I think that's a major blind spot. And it's something that, you know, people of deep faith or, or deep religious conviction is not something that's very common to see outwardly expressed in my own city, which is Washington, D.C. Um, so, you know, I see this on a regular basis that People just like, wait, they're not real. They don't seriously believe that they don't really. I mean, um, and one example that I often bring up because I think it's really it's really telling is uh, when this uh, Muslim Brotherhood official in Egypt 
and we were talking we were talking about why people joined the Muslim Brotherhood, and this has really stuck with me over the years. You know, there are, people bring up a lot of material factors or kind of political causes for people joining this religious Islamist movement, like economic factors, underemployment, rural urban migration, being pissed off at the U.S., and those all matter. I'm not going to deny that. But then he mentioned, well, you know, sometimes people have a simpler reason is that they join the brotherhood because they want to get into heaven. And I liked how he put that because we don't talk about heaven that much in our in our kind of ordinary political discourse in the Middle East. I think that the desire for heaven or for eternal salvation is the most rational of convictions. There's nothing at all irrational about it. If if you take as your starting premise that God exists. Now, if you don't, if someone doesn't believe in God, then obviously it would be weird if they believed in an afterlife, right? They usually go together. But if someone believes in God with a strong level of conviction, and at least in in Christianity and Islam, that would also probably entail a belief in, in an afterlife and heaven and hell specifically. So if you do, if that's your kind of orientation, Doing things in this world for the next would seem to be the most rational course of action, right? Interestingly, we did some uh, research in 2009 around science and religion and creationism. And actually, there's a significant subset of people who believe in an afterlife but don't believe in God. We uh, oh, don't okay. need to be that rational <laughs> in terms of our, our um, <laughs> the selection of metaphysical things that we ascribe to. Anyway, side yeah. point. Um, I wonder if this difficulty in understanding sincerely held religious belief from those who don't have it. Um, it's partly to do with the history of secularism and Christianity, particularly in Western Europe. And you said that, uh, and this was surprising for me as you know, some, a British person looking at America, that growing up you in, in Pennsylvania, is that right, Philadelphia? Uh, so outside of Philadelphia, uh, in a town yeah, called Bryn Mawr. Great. You didn't encounter many openly Christian people and Christianity was therefore sort of something that you assumed that people didn't take very seriously. And I do think the nominal Christianity, the cultural Christianity, which is a strong heritage in Western Europe and, and in parts of America, does make our ability to talk and think about religion difficult because people assume that it is this privatized, um, you know, in, in Britain's case, heavily Protestantized thing that's about beliefs, but, you know, is often seen as uh, quite a dilute form epitomized by caricatures of the Church of England. When did you first encounter? Christianity that was held in a more life-changing way. And what was your reaction to that? Yeah, so I don't know. It may sound odd to your listeners, but, um, well, so Br Bryn Mawr is a more kind of like liberal, it's it's town, it's, it's, it's the suburbs of Philadelphia. So we're still talking about basically an urban area. So, and that comes with certain things. Um, and I did not have, you know, I've thought about it, and I'm sure there are instances that I've kind of forgotten, but generally speaking, I didn't know any serious, outwardly serious Christians growing up with maybe one or two exceptions, but the norm was this nominal Christianity or this cultural Christianity. So I didn't really have experiences with a deeply felt Christian faith until I was quite a bit older. My only experience seeing religious people was seeing Muslims. I've only started to really learn about Christianity as an adult and in part, you know, obviously because of my work. And, and that's that's been important for me. 
And that has also been, I think, very illuminating for me to understand where this this deeper the deeper convictions around Christianity come from and how and how those folks kind of um um see Christianity playing a role in, in in public life, in their own personal engagement in the public sphere. But that was something that I had to learn and observe in a more conscious way. It's not something that every American experiences naturally. And I think, you know, sometimes there's this perception that Americans are are more religious and they are on average more religious than than most Europeans are. However, there is a clustering of that kind of religious conviction and in certain parts of the country it's just not a very common thing or it there are people who and I I've experienced this here here in DC where people who I was maybe I've been friends with them for a while and um only maybe a year into our friendship I realized that they are committed Christians because it, they're not used to talking about those things publicly or openly in our very secular atmosphere. Um, and I'm just thinking about my group of friends and the people I see regularly. Talking about religion in a serious way is not something people are super comfortable doing, unless maybe they're they're Muslim or Jewish. But if you're Christian, and this maybe also coincides with ideas of of white privilege and not being very and trying to be politically correct and not wanting to make people feel uncomfortable because Christianity seems, it can seem, unfortunately, to many people as something imposing or aggressive, or it suggests a partisan bias. It might mean that people are are Republicans or that they don't support LGBT rights and so on. You have obviously spent a lot of time thinking about your own faith and about uh, how that interacts in the world. But the, part of the premise of this podcast is that we're in very fractious tribal debates and that we all get sucked into it and reflecting on our own role in those public conversations is healthy. So this is not a particularly loaded or personal question to you, <laughs> okay. but if you're happy to, would you talk about where your own tribalisms show up and how you navigate those? I think I'm open about one aspect of my tribalism. My tribe is the Democratic Party, which might seem odd to some people, because if you followed me on Twitter, that that might not necessarily be super obvious because I'm very critical of the Democratic Party. But that's precisely what makes it tribal. I don't particularly like the Democratic Party, at least in its current form. I think it may be changing probably for the better now. But at some point, you kind of have to pick a side. And I don't have the time to really develop extremely well articulated or well thought out positions on things that I don't work on professionally. So for example, on certain economic issues or educational policy or healthcare, which I have thought more about, but still I, I don't know, I'm not an expert on on healthcare, universal healthcare versus other options and different European models and all of that. So at some level, so why do I believe in universal healthcare? I think that I now that I've thought about it more consciously, I think that I have reasons for believing in it. But but the reason I initially supported universal health care, it's because it was my it was the tribal position. If I'm a Democrat, there are certain positions that that kind of come along with that. Right. And it just makes it makes life a lot easier. Otherwise, like no one is looking at a list of policy proposals on like Hillary Clinton's website or Donald Trump's website or whatever it might be and thinking very consciously about, oh, whose policies to, do I prefer? I didn't like Hillary Clinton all that much, but I supported her and did so openly because that's what 
my tribe was doing. And there wasn't really, not to say that I didn't think she was better. I, I, I did think that, and I, I still do think that certainly in light of, in light of recent developments, but it was just something that was more based on identity, if that makes sense, rather than a careful thought out um, discerning of, of specific policies. So that's, that's one thing that I would say. The other tribe that I'm part of is, you know, as someone who is very committed to democracy in, in, the, in the more minimalist procedural sense of mass preferences, I think that I have a kind of discomfort with mass preferences on a kind of cultural and aesthetic level. I'm suspicious of whatever a lot of people like, and this could even apply to, to elites. I don't, I don't like, I don't like too much consensus and I don't like too many people agreeing, agreeing with each other. So I see myself as a kind of tribal nonconformist and I've been criticized for being overly contrarian. And I think there is a part of me that um, tries to seek out what the contrarian position might be. I do think that I, but I, I do think that I do that because I, I do think that, you know, conv the conventional wisdom can be more dangerous than we often give it, give it credit for being. So I, I think that that's probably, it's something that I wish more people had a kind of instinct for, although I do realize at the same time that we have to be careful about contrarianism for the sake of it. And I, I, and I have tried to be, I think, more careful about that. And kind of holding back if I see something and I see this like this group think on Twitter all the time. And, you know, I don't want to use the Republican talking points on this, but call it whatever you will. PC culture. I just find so much of it intolerable on Twitter. And I've just had to learn to just take a step back and not try to get involved, because if I if I was responding to everything that I found insufferable in this regard, it would be I'd become more and more insufferable. And I guess I have to be careful about that. I think that's probably a risk for all of us um, involved <laughs> in social media. Uh, where do you think it comes from? You're, you are pretty relaxed about conflict and disagreement. In fact, it sounds like you're more uncomfortable with agreement than you are with disagreement. Do you think that's character? Do you think it's academic formation? Do you think it's the sense of having a, a slight dual identity? Do you have a uh, do you have that self awareness or is it yeah. a work in progress? Well, so I think some of it has to do with being a minority, although you would think, well, but it doesn't necessarily hold for other minorities because not as if like all Muslims or all all brown people or whatever are are like me in this regard. But I think it's my own experience with dealing with being both an American and a Muslim, and the fact that I've I've gone through ideological evolutions, I've changed over time. And I've realized that our political preferences or even really our ideological and religious preferences are contingent and that there were things that I believed in 15 years ago. And I look back and I'm like, oh, my God. But, you know, that doesn't that doesn't mean I regret thinking those things. It just means that I was at a I was in a different context and people change. And if our, if our and if we're just individuals and our opinions change over time then we should be a little bit more tolerant if people end up having bad or stupid ideas or quote unquote stupid ideas every now and then. And they might change at some later point and go through their own evolution. Um, but I also think that um, there is a deeper and this is interesting because 
there there's a kind of language that I would use now that I've only acquired fairly recently. So I've I've gotten more into this idea of Christian pluralism. And I guess the the main person who's written a lot about this in recent years is Matthew Kamink, who is an evangelical theologian at the Fuller Seminary. And he has he has a book a new book on this, um, which is called uh, Christian Hospitality and Muslim Immigration in Age of Fear. But basically, he kind of expounds on Christian pluralism, and and he really draws on the work of the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, who I maybe like heard about in passing, but I knew almost nothing about. And basically, the idea here is that we are, and this is a very Christian idea of that in this temporal world, we are all broken, we are all fallen by sin. And this brokenness does have major implications for for pluralism and difference and accepting difference specifically, that if there is that if perfection is beyond us and is inaccessible in this life, then there there has to be a corresponding modesty and humility about what we're able to say on the level of definitive truth. So that that's become I like I like the kind of Christian approach to it. There are Islamic or uh, or Muslim corollaries to to Christian pluralism, which we might call I don't know Islamic pluralism, if you will. There's also a secular uh, a secular version of this, and I guess the the main political theorist who's influenced me in this regard is is the Belgian political philosopher Chantal Mouffe who's talked about agonism, this idea that politics is inherently conflictual and that all all political orders are contingent and they can change and they should be able to change. And that the friend-enemy distinction, um, the, the kind of Carl Schmidt idea of the friend-enemy, she takes it in a very different direction, thank God, than Carl Schmidt. That if, if there is a kind of a, a very conflict-ridden aspect to our existence in this world, then ha- then the question of politics becomes how how do we accept that in a way that is peaceful and nonviolent so where where schmidt takes this towards fascism she and the other agonistic philosophers take it to a kind of more pluralistic a secular pluralism that is very accepting of deep difference so um i think those those ideas i i've maybe felt them in different ways because of um, my upbringing. But I should also say living in the Middle East has had this effect on me as well, because when you see people killing each other over deep difference and the things that I saw and experienced during the Arab Spring, and maybe this is more important to mention, they really darkened my view of human nature. So in Christian pluralism, there's a strong Calvinistic strain of it. And Abraham Kuyper was a Calvinist, um, and Calvinists have generally a darker view of of human nature. Um, But in the Middle East, you see how people, and I saw how Egyptians turned against each other after this moment of joy and optimism when when the the dictator fell in 2011, Hosni Hosni Mubarak, and you see this, this beautiful side of Egyptians, and you see them experiencing this full unfettered freedom, perhaps for the first time, at least in this particular way, and then you see how that fell into, it became ultimately or transformed into an episode of of the worst mass killing in modern Egyptian history, which happened in August 2013. And I think that some of my work 
has been about trying to make sense of that. And I think that this more, this, this deep pluralism, which is very much influenced by this modesty about what we can achieve in this world and what we can know definitively is really the only way or one of the only ways to avoid the descent into violence. Um, otherwise, you, the stakes are too high. So one of my big questions is how do we reduce the stakes? How do we make this winner-takes-all approach to politics, which was very, which happened, which unfortunately became a big feature of Middle Eastern political life when I was there, but also I think is becoming a bigger feature, unfortunately, of our own political life in, in the U.S. and Europe, that there's too much at stake, that the winner-takes-all, that... Um, and what I think the um, pluralistic philosophers or agonistic philosophers focus on is this idea that there can be no final victory in, in politics, that there's no final victory in this life. And from a religious standpoint, there can only be a final, a final conclusion or a final victory, if you will, in the next life. It is brilliant to hear about that. I think it, it's making me ponder about the role of liberalism more broadly because it felt for a good few decades, like political liberalism. And I think it's important that we distinguish political liberalism from social liberalism. Political liberalism as a kind of holding space. Uh, Rowan Williams' distinction between procedural secularism and, and um, programmatic sec secularism, I think, is, is, is sometimes helpful. You know, liberalism that allows that difference and diversity to flourish rather than you know, social liberalism as a set of values that you're called to live by that political liberalism might be the answer to our differences and that is now very much being called into question tim farron who was on the podcast and also did a theos lecture for us last year he's a a, a evangelical christian mp who stepped down after he felt like political liberalism was under threat because he wasn't able to be an evangelical christian and a liberal in people's minds so you call yourself a liberal You've also said that you think there is a tension between Islam and liberalism, although not between Islam and democracy. Do you think liberalism is ultimately the answer and it just needs to reform itself? Or is it time for something that looks more like a post-liberalism or an alternative? I do consider myself a liberal, but one who is critical of liberalism. And there are obviously different strains of liberalism, and you sort of touched on that. Um, I think that even um, maybe even a less all-encompassing liberalism, like a, a kind of Rawlsian political liberalism, still has its ideological premises. So it's not neutral. And I think um, ultimately no particular political philosophy or ideolo ideology is, is neutral. Um, the interesting thing about, um, about liberal liberals, and here again, I'm just talking more about liberals in the classical liberal tradition. What's interesting and uh, I think that I, I became more aware of this over time because I would notice these built-in premises, assumptions, and biases, but they weren't really stated outright, that liberalism is only neutral to people who are already liberal. Obviously, if you're not liberal, you're not going to see liberalism as neutral, you know, right? Um, but because liberalism is is so infused in American political culture, and, and, I'm, and I've benefited from that, and I, I am who I am because of that. And I think that if you took my like my same genetic dis disposition, let's say I was born from the same parents, but I was born in Egypt, Jordan, or Pakistan, I would almost certainly not be a liberal because I think that liberalism, like almost everything, is contingent. 
Um, and there's no reason to think that that I would have become liberal or believe in liberalism in other circumstances. And um, I am a product of American culture and I am American. That's really important to me. And maybe that's also one of my tribes. It's really great to have someone be so honest about how contingent we are in the way that we've been formed. Uh, I'm going to ask a final question about being a public Muslim. And I'm interested in this as someone who is a public Christian and wrestles with that. And you've spoken a bit about having previously tried to seem like a disinterested analyst and in recent years becoming more comfortable with saying, actually, I've got some skin in the game here. So what is the experience of representing Islam and how do you balance that, the desire not to you know, add fuel to anti-Muslim bigotry, but also to have that critical part of you that is so central to your sense of identity and be able to say what needs to change in Islam? So. I've, well, oh, there's a lot here. So I've only become, well, first of all, I would say I consider myself a writer who happens to be Muslim rather than <clears throat> a Muslim who writes, if that sort of makes sense. I mean, be, being Muslim is not my primary identity. And I've never, be, I've never, I haven't felt so if you look at other Muslims who I think are quite public in their in their writing, quite a few of them are like more very outwardly Muslim and I think sometimes there that can that can seep into defending Islam. I'm not comfortable defending Islam. I don't think that's my job. I don't think I don't see it as being the most intellectually honest thing an academic or a scholar of of Islam and politics can, can do. And, you know, sometimes I get into, um, you know, arguments, friendly arguments with my parents or just others, other Muslims, Muslim friends more generally that like Shadi, like this doesn't make Islam sound good. Or like, can you just like, you know, can you say this a different way? You know, uh, and, you know, I, I, um, there is a tension there and because people see me and sometimes I am identified as a Muslim as a Muslim writer or Muslim intellectual or whatever it might be. And that's always been weird to me because um, are other people described as, as Christian writers? Of course, I do write a lot about Islam, so I kind of get it. And I am Muslim, right? So it is something I'm thinking about more. And I think people are also making me more conscious of being Muslim. And it's all, I feel like it's, I don't want to say imposed, but maybe in a way it's imposed on me where minority consciousness or group consciousness is a big part of leftist intersectional culture. And now people are reminding me that, that I'm the only Muslim in the room. There's this idea of representation and positionality of, oh, like how many brown people are there in a room? And that just doesn't, this is a whole different conversation. I don't mean to go into this tangent, but I was not I've become more conscious because other people are insisting on me being conscious about being a Muslim in a particular position where where I think for a long time, if I was the only Muslim in the room, that just didn't seem like a particular why, you know, why does there have to be two Muslims or why do there, why do there have to be four brown people instead of two? It just seems so arbitrary. And that's not that's not the most important thing about me. The most important thing about me is that I happen to be me, not that I happen to be Muslim, right? So I think that in those ways, I'm a little bit different. And I'm, I'm, uh, it's, yeah, again, and so 
And the last thing I'll just say about this, because there's just so, I guess, so much I could say, but um, we have to understand if I, so I do think, as I've said, that Islam is is different. And I, I wrote a book that had that in the title, that Islam is exceptional. So obviously it's something that I'm comfortable stating publicly and unapologetically. And this is where the risk that you mentioned comes into play, that I do worry that the arguments I make about Islam's exceptionalism um, can be misused. And I do try to be as contextual and nuanced when I explain the argument. And I don't think exceptionalism or difference, as we've talked about, is is necessarily bad. Being different can be good. And certainly Muslims like the fact that Islam is different than other religions. And what would be the point of religion otherwise if there weren't things that were foundationally different than the other religions, right? But I think it's better for all of us, whether it's in Europe and the U.S., to be honest about those differences. If we go into these debates and say, well, oh, Muslims are the same or Islam is the same, and then especially Europeans who are on average much more secular than, say, Muslims, Muslim minorities in Europe who are on average more practicing in, say, France, Britain, Germany, and so on, that if we go in with the assumption of sameness and we find out that Muslims do have higher levels of practice and these and this kind of ritual practice can also have public implications because the private and the public are not completely separate in, in Islam, then there's a kind of disappointment that Muslims aren't getting with the program. And I think we'd all be better off if we acknowledge difference and we accept that difference can be good. Um, it can also be bad in some ways, obviously. But let's just be honest about that. I think that's a better starting point for for conversation and debate. Shadi, there is so much in that, and I I would hope to get you back at a later date to yeah, unpack sure. would love to. much <laughs> more uh, what the identity politics move is, um, the impact that it's having on on individuals and their sense of how they speak into public conversations. But for now, we must finish because you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much for talking with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast we're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.